Welcome to this recording of the Activist Lawyer podcast brought to you from the Granite Exchange studio in the heart of Newry. We are delighted that you could join us today for another episode of Activist Lawyer, where we will be engaging not only with lawyers, but people who are committed to highlighting and combating injustices and inequalities. We will bring you our thoughts and invite you to share yours. We'll be looking for contributors to our blog at www.activistlawyer.com. So today I am joined by fellow immigration practitioner, Carol Sinnott. I'm delighted to have Carol speak to us on a topic that I'm familiar with, but one that will be of interest to many of our listeners for several reasons. Just to provide a little bit of background, Carol Sinnott is an immigration solicitor and principal of Sinnott Solicitors in Dublin and Cork. I think you've recently opened an office in Cork as well. And she has extensive experience in dealing with immigration and asylum and started working in the area in 1999 before qualifying as a solicitor in 2004. Carol started her career with Cahill O'Neill Solicitors, who started the very first immigration law firm in Ireland. Her firm has been involved in many high-profile immigration cases, some of which have shaped Irish immigration law and made their way to the European Court of Justice. Very, very good. So, Carol, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have Thanks, you. Thanks, Sarah. So, Carol has been in our offices before. She's been in our studio. But today, with restrictions and everything in place, we are having a chat across the border via phone-in. So, hopefully, the sound is, is okay for everybody. So, this is a first for us. Um, but I, I think, given that restrictions here have been extended, it might be more of a, a frequent occurrence. So, um, Carol, just in the introduction there, I'm familiar with um, the area of practice in, in your jurisdiction as well as here. So you've got, I suppose, vast experience covering all matters relating to immigration. And uh, you've recently expanded your firm, I think, was it a couple of weeks ago you've opened your new office in Cork? Yeah, so just before Christmas, we, we opened our Cork office. Ah. So that was a very exciting development for us. Absolutely. And um, yeah, so there are two solicitors there, Una O'Brien and Louise Ring, who are heading up the operation down there. And uh, we're delighted about it because over the last few years, we've had a lot more clients in the Munster region and obviously nationwide because we're immigration solicitors. And uh, I think it will definitely help us to expand operations. But other than that, I think it will make, make it a very convenient location for a lot of our existing clients as well. Absolutely, because I remember starting off in immigration many, many years ago, and most practices were based based centrally in Dublin. But you'd have clients from all over Ireland, you know, and as you said, it will be convenient, um, you know, because people have different needs. Um, accessibility can always be an issue. So that's fantastic that you'll be serving that that region. And just you've opened up uh, during or expanded during a pandemic. How has the current restrictions and COVID impacted your practice in general or has it? Have you been managing okay? Well, I find that the third wave is very different to the first wave yes. because last March, everything more or less stopped for solicitors across the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we are in in many respects essential services, but, um, you know, with um, people being at home and working from home and uh, the fact that the uh, immigration wasn't, uh, as you know, people weren't coming into the country as much, mm-hmm. I guess that probably slowed things a little. But certainly I find that in this third wave, uh, we're very, very busy with immigration, yeah. you know, whether it's sort of work for permits, renewals, uh, visas, you know, it, it doesn't stop really. It doesn't so, stop. Um, yeah, it continues. Yeah. And people are more used it's to that. Fact- Thankfully. Yeah, it's great. And I suppose you just learn to manage and, you know, you come up with new and creative ways to, to deal with your clients. And I think clients are very respectful of the fact, you know, that changes had to be made, etc. But I do yeah. agree with you that the first time was complete lockdown and even yeah. trying to get documents sworn. You know, you had to figure out, well, how am I going to submit this application if I can't get another slip? So kind of practical things arose, whereas this time I think most people have figured out a way to make things work and we're getting used to it so long may it yeah. continue that um oh yeah you know, we, different. exactly yeah. so just to move on to some of the key issues that we're going to look at and it's really one topic in particular and I'm so keen to chat to Carol about this because it's quite a live issue for us at the moment and 
people making inquiries, I suppose, across Ireland with various um, immigration practitioners around Irish citizenship and the Irish passport. So uh, a recent article had said that it's um, obviously becoming somewhat of a very important commodity of late, ranking sixth most sought after passport in the world. So with us, I mean, the obvious thing to point at in our region is probably Brexit and we can relay some of the growth in, in, in the increase in demand for the Irish passport to Brexit. Certainly for us, you know, you'd have clients who would say previously, you know, we may have considered applying for the British passport if they're living in Northern Ireland and meet all the residency criteria, but now they're interested in looking at the Irish passport and seeing what it offers them. So we've experienced um, an increase in queries there. And I guess... In general, it's good to go through naturalisation and many people won't really be familiar with the process and it can be somewhat complex, Carol. So it's great to have you here. So firstly, we're going to just provide a little bit of expert insight into actually applying for citizenship through naturalisation. So we're not talking about applying for an Irish passport as such. It's more so how people can look at becoming Irish through mostly through naturalisation, a process that Carol will go into. So perhaps we could look at the concept, Carol, of Irish citizenship and what's involved maybe for our listeners. Yeah, well, Irish citizenship, it can be acquired in a number of different ways under the Irish Nationality and Citizenship Act. Um, Naturalisation, obviously, is one of those ways. And um, one that you'll certainly be familiar with, Sarah, as are we, is the... um, you know, joining the foreign birth register, yes. whereby citizenship by descent and um, a third way then is uh, citizenship by association. So I guess the last couple of years, for us anyway, I, I don't think in my lifetime we have ever made so many applications for um, foreign birth registrations, you know, because mainly because of Brexit, you know, so anybody with an Irish grandparent or whatever Everybody wants an Irish passport, whether they're in the UK and other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but once that sort of fizzles out, I think it's fair to say that the largest uh, number of citizenship applications are through the process of naturalisation. Mm-hmm. And that is the process by which the, the state may confer Irish citizenship upon a person as a privilege, not a right. And um, that led to the most significant rise in applications for citizenship. Um, so mm. there's other factors as well. For of example, mm. the Trump administration, a lot of U.S. citizens want to, wanted, wanted an escape route and an Irish passport if that became necessary as well. <laughs> so we would have had a lot of those yeah. types of applications over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously the conferral of Irish citizenship has so many benefits. Mm-hmm. not just the fact that the person becomes an Irish citizen, but it's also the gateway now into Europe and mm-hmm. the fact that those people will derive so many benefits from the EU directives for free movement of persons and all of that. Absolutely. And even now we're seeing kind of post-Brexit, the, the new era that we're in here currently in Northern Ireland, um, I suppose there's a temporary uh, opening of rights afforded to third uh, family members of, of Irish citizens who live in Northern Ireland who also you know, possess an Irish passport. That'll soon come to an end, no doubt. But the questions that arise are, well, you know, what rights would I have if I used my Irish passport and relocated to another EU member state? And of course, they're probably still able to rely on, you know, the, the EU directives and free move, movement, as you said, whereby somebody solely relying on a British passport won't be able to access that any longer. So, yes, there's there's many, many benefits. And I guess your firm in particular, I've seen quite a few articles of late and some um, important immigration judicial reviews that you were involved in were um, before the High Court in Dublin. So I think practitioners have followed with great interest, not just your cases, but recent developments in citizenship case law in Ireland, Carol. So you might just comment on some yeah. of those significant um, challenges that we've seen of late. Yeah, well, what, once the decision to refuse an application for naturalisation is made, there is no right of appeal. Mm-hmm. And that means that the only way of challenging a refusal is by way of an application for judicial review before the High Court, um, which is why there has been so many judicial reviews in relation to citizenship applications. Mm-hmm. So there has been 
definitely some very significant um, constitutional cases regarding citizenship in the last few years. And in particular, um, to deal with, you know, to do with refusals regarding uh, refusals for reasons of character of the applicant, mm -hmm. uh, failure of the applicant to meet the residency requirements, and obviously the area of revocation of citizenship mm -hmm. has also become very uh, prominent in um, case law mm -hmm. over the last few years as well. Yeah. So, and we've seen a bit of a change, I suppose, in the court's attitude as well of late. You know, um, just towards certain applications. I think you were involved in one of the cases around the six-week absence rule that we'll talk about a little bit further into the conversation. But you do see a bit of a shift and I suppose a little bit, as a result of that, a bit more pressure perhaps on the government to review potentially the way citizenship is handled in certain regards. And just from reviewing other countries and really digging into the application form itself, um, Ireland has, I suppose every country has its own unique interpretations and their, their own policy and legislation around what it means because at the start you did say it's a privilege, not a right. So it's therefore quite a discretionary type of application. But um, some countries are less restrictive. I know Britain in some respects is in the UK for people applying for citizenship. But we might look at, I suppose in a general way, more specifically those cases around, yeah. you know, even the duty of the minister. I remember being a big feature. The minister would never provide a reason in some cases as to why it was refused. So that was challenged in a very important Supreme Court case. Yeah, so there is a long history of case law in relation to citizenship. But um, so, for example, before 2012, uh, like citizenship is discretionary and, and that, that's just it. It's, it's, it's a privilege, not a right. So there's no automatic entitlement to it. And the minister has an incredibly wise discretion or certainly has. Um, but so before 2012, there was a, a Supreme Court case of Malik and the Minister for Justice. And that case established that the minister must provide an applicant with reasons mm -hmm. for refusal or at the very least, to provide the justification for not providing reasons. And the situation before Malik was that the minister didn't need to, to yeah. provide any reasons whatsoever or any reasons for the refusal to provide a reason. So it was a very, you know, very yeah. uncharted territory up to that point. <laughs> and since the Malik decision, there is a much bigger onus now on the minister to provide not just the reasons for the refusal, but also the rationale for right. those reasons. Yes. In, this, in in coming to um, decisions for, you know, ref in refusing applications based on character and um, residency and uh, and deciding to revoke applications, you know. Absolutely. So it's a, a real, an area that's really evolving slowly but surely because that was only 2012, not so long ago that that, um, that, fact change, that factor changed. Another matter that crops up, I spoke to you about it a little bit before, I'm dealing with it at the moment, concerns refusals based upon, you know, this good character requirement. Um, and I think the notion of good character can be quite contentious when it comes to applications for Irish naturalisation and also very confusing for some applicants when they're they're actually, you know, completing their form. And it's something that gives them, you know, great concern in many cases. So I know you've some experience in this yourself, Carol, with some of your, your cases and just looking at recent case law in general. Yeah, so in order to meet the criteria, the applicant has to be of good character and that's the statutory basis for that is Section 15 of the, the Act. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Minister is obliged now, because it has been established by the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal, that, 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 that the Minister must provide a proper rationale mm -hmm. as to why the character was called into question. And indeed, if the applicant is ultimately refused, um, you know, the rationale has to be quite specific. So, mm -hmm. So there was a recent Court of Appeal case in 2020, um, the case of MNN and the Minister for Justice. And just to give you an example of this, Sarah, in that particular case, the Minister had made a decision uh, without putting the incident and the subsequent strikeout order in its proper context. So um, it concerned a, a case whereby two road traffic offences and another alleged incident 
led to a decision that the applicant had failed to meet the good character requirement. Mm -hmm. And the court in that case noticed that it was clear that the court um, it couldn't decipher what view the minister took of the alleged offence. But it was also clear that the minister must have taken some view because otherwise there would have been no need to refer to the incident in coming to his decision. Mm-hmm. And in that particular uh, decision, the court ordered that the minister's decision be, be quashed and that the applicant's application would be readmitted. Yeah. And then, not too long after that, there was another case called uh, Tala mm-hmm. and the Minister for Justice. And in that case, again, the minister wasn't satisfied of his good character and the decision referred to the applicant as having a a history of non-compliance of laws with the state. But the Court of Appeal in that case wasn't satisfied at all that the Minister had considered and weighed up all of the relevant considerations, including the man's explanation for his motoring offences. And the Court held in that case that the Minister had failed to express his rationales for deciding that the nature of the offences meant that the applicant was not a person of good character. So, um, again, it sets the the standard for the Minister now to to provide the reasons and the rationale for for coming to that decision. Yeah, which is only fair. And it's good that it was kind of reviewed on a case-by-case basis almost because I think the solicitors in that case in particular had, you know, um, submitted reasonable explanations and it was very, very clear. So that was a very positive outcome and it's just good, in a sense, just to see how decisions are reached and how the court took that view. Um, another thing that comes up, of course, is in the application form itself, uh, what to disclose and what not to disclose. So again, there can be some ambiguity around that and people may be surprised then if their application was refused for not disclosing something. And really the position is around convictions, I guess, is the most important uh, word that kind of strikes you when you you look at the application form. But have you come across that issue? I know I come across it all the time. Uh, Oh, yeah. I'm sure with your clients and what you should disclose and what's relevant, etc. Well, actually, that case that I've just um, spoken to you about there, Tala and the Minister, in that particular case, it was interesting because the court said in that case that the citizenship um, applicant must disclose previous convictions, even if they're spent convictions, mm-hmm. right? So that, um, that's a, ex- extremely important because mo- a lot of applicants mistakenly believe that spent convictions are not of any relevance to their application. Mm-hmm. And um, so a certain number of convictions become spent after seven years. Yes. For example, um, convictions in the district court for, say, motoring, uh, motoring offences apart from, say, convictions for dangerous driving, which um, are limited to a single conviction, mm-hmm. and then convictions for minor public order offences and um, certain other convictions, after seven years, they become spent. Mm-hmm. But um, if if an applicant is making an application for citizenship, well, then they must disclose all of those spent convictions as well. Yeah, it's so important. And um, I guess that's where some confusion arises. But I think that's a point that really has to be taken on board for anybody making an application. So and obviously that feeds into a decision around good character. And it is something that comes up here, just in terms of just the logistical side of things. The minister, in all cases, as as an application progresses, will ask for a criminal record check. And in Northern Ireland, that's done through the DAT one form as accessed by the P- through the PSNI. So that comes at a later stage after submitting an application. And but people should still be aware, as you said, although a record may not show spent convictions, it should still be disclosed. Um, so that's very important. So something I've rarely come across, Carol, and I'm wondering if it's something you've encountered or you've been following any case law on it is again looking at reasons for refusal something that crops up around national security concerns um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that because I think there's been a few recent cases around refusals that have been growing on this point in recent years Yeah there, there has been a growing number of refusals in relation to national security concerns in, in recent years um, 
the in actually just in May 2019, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called AP and the Minister for Justice. And in that case, you see, national security is such a um, obviously an important thing that you know there, the minister seems to have a, a wide discretion in in refusing applications on that basis, but. In that particular case, the minister didn't provide any reason for the refusal because the minister relied on certain provisions of the Freedom of Information Act and as for the reasons as to why the applicant's, applicant's right to know the content of the materials relied on um, mm-hmm. weren't available. And the minister argued in that case that the applicant's rights in that regard were outweighed by national security considerations. Mm-hmm. And they, that the minister said that, you know, the minister needed to maintain the confidentiality over the information concerned. And that argument, interestingly, was upheld in the High Court and subsequently in the Court of Appeals mm-hmm. until the case went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said in that case that the ultimate decision on whether the state's interests outweigh the requirement to provide that information is a decision that must be made by the court and not by a state authority. So it was an interesting judgment in that the court held that the, the failure to give the more detailed reasons can only be regarded as justified if that failure impairs the entitlement to reasons to the minimum extent necessary. So um, in that case, it, the court said that the state didn't abide by the principles of proportionality right. in impacting the rights of the applicant to the minimum extent. So, um, and just, just on national security concerns, the, in October last year, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, she announced the establishment of a single person committee of inquiry, which is new, and that will be served by a retired High Court judge, John Hedigan. And I understand that that committee is being established to review, upon request from the applicant, the materials upon which the decision to refuse the certificate of naturalisation was made. Um, so th- th- that will be another, I guess, interesting yeah. development in terms of national security concerns. This podcast is sponsored by Granite Exchange. Do you need an office or a meeting room space? Granite Exchange is the ultimate serviced office and meeting room facility. Located in the heart of Newry City, it is perfectly placed between Belfast and Dublin. Each office suite is fully furnished and comes with an all-inclusive monthly fee with no long-term contract. All you have to do is show up and switch on. The rest is taken care of. For more information, call 028 3044 or visit www.granite-exchange.com. It seems to be an area, I know it's its, its own area in terms of just naturalisation as part of the whole wider immigration process, but it certainly seems to be grabbing um, attention at the moment, you know, with, as you said, this committee of inquiry and then the recent surge in, in high court decisions as well are really shaping citizenship going forward. Just to maybe uh, finish on the point around uh, refusals, one another issue that crops up, and I'm sure for you, for you as well, not just around the good character, but is is the point around continuous residency, and this can be confusing for clients or for applicants. But uh, there was recent case law on this point as well, around you know the six week rule, and how people yeah. actually show show that. So just to give some insight around that, Carl, and your your experience in those cases, because I know I've I've plenty going on at the moment around it. Yeah, well, it, I, I think it's probably an area that's not just confusing for the applicants, mm. but it can confuse the solicitors <laughs> dealing with the application just as much. Yeah. Um, th- that's what we call the six-week rule. And um, it, it, it's a rule that kind of crept in over time with no statutory basis for it. And um, I think we can kind of pinpoint around mid-2018 or so that that sort of crept in as a policy consideration almost. And uh, but anyway, the, the the Citizenship Act states that one of the conditions of naturalisation is that the applicant must have had one year's continuous residence 
in the year uh, prior to the date of making the application, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's on top of the fact that the applicant must have five years out of the previous nine and 60 months reckonable residency and all that kind of stuff. But the, the year in which, the you know, prior to the application, the applicant must have been continuously resident. And um, that case was, um, or that, that rule, the six-week rule, was challenged in um, 2019 by, we were involved in that case um, mm-hmm. And it's the, the Roderick Jones case, Roderick Jones and the Minister for Justice. And um, that case, I guess, provides some clarity now around that six-week rule. Um, in that particular case, the the applicant challenged the six-week rule as his application had been refused on that basis before the High Court. And the High Court decision um, effectively said that there, you know, held that there wasn't, in fact, any basis for the rule, lawful basis, but at the same time, um, that continuous residency required the presence of a person's uninterrupted mm-hmm. um, residence, which meant that effectively after that decision, we were sort of left in a situation whereby uh, it was interpreted that the applicant couldn't even be out of the country for one day, you know, <laughs> people were given crazy it, it, examples. Could you yeah. cross, cross the border to Newry, you know, to do to do your shopping for the day and stay over? So yeah. you were hearing these different scenarios crop up and listening to solicitors being interviewed. It was just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to, you know, to look at that decision literally, that's kind of what it meant. Yeah. Like where, where it, it, it did. Uh, the, to be fair, the the court did did say that there wasn't a. Um, a basis for it, but at the same time, the the interpretation that the court mm-hmm. gave of continuous residency caused a, a, a lot of uh, confusion for a long time, until the court of appeal overturned that continuous residence finding of the high court, mm-hmm. and the court of appeal actually found that the policy of the minister wasn't a rigid or inflexible policy, and that the policy was reasonable, right? Yeah. So the upshot of that Court of Appeal decision, whilst it does provide significant clarity on the law mm-hmm. and we're more or less stuck with the six-week rule, mm-hmm. um, the difficulty for us now is that we don't have any clarity on what exactly the rule, what exactly the rule um, means because we need further clarity in relation to, particularly in relation to the six weeks absence policy and what, what exceptional circumstances yeah. and work uh, related travel are allowed, for example. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think it would be good to get more clarity on what is considered to be yeah. um, an acceptable absence and what is not. So, so the, the judgment really just takes us back to the position pre-July 2019 where absences of up to six weeks were permitted but we have no guidelines no. related to work or allowable absences in exceptional circumstances. It's still confusing and sometimes it's difficult for clients to even track, you know, for applicants to track how long they have spent, um, you know, depending on whether it was work related or visiting family abroad, which is common. I mean, we live in a global environment and it's quite normal that people would spend you know lengths of time out of the the country but it it shouldn't it doesn't affect their residency because that's still where they're based and you know so it it does cause confusion so I think you're right um more reform and more clarity needed around that point so there for me I guess the main uh, strands of applying for citizenship that come to us um, in terms of queries, and I suppose um, are very visible there through the case law and the various the various examples that you set out, Carol. But just in terms of, I mean, this has been on the increase too. I think the issue of revocation, and the Act does provide. Um, the minister with a power to revoke a certificate of naturalisation. Have you any experience in in that area? And you know, what are the important factors for listeners to to know about that? Yeah, we certainly have. Um, in the last few years, we noticed that the revocation of citizenship has become a very big thing, and uh, it's, it's quite a common decision now for the minister to revoke uh, citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and often in circumstances where the applicant may have had citizenship for a number of years. So once once an application, once the revocation is order is made, it it unravels so many things for for the for the applicant. Mm-hmm. You know, like it obviously un- unravels their once they're no longer citizens, it, it affects their lawful residence in the state. If that filters down to their families, and you know, it it has mm-hmm. it, it, it's a devastating blow really for for applicants when their when their citizenship is revoked. Mm-hmm. And um, but, but but there is the minister has the power under section 19 of the act to revoke citizenship for a number of reasons, and um, all I would think very valid reasons. But uh, there has been some recent case law as well in relation to that, um, in relation to that issue. I, I think the, I, I should probably point out to you there at the outset that one of the most significant judgments is the case of Ali Dimash, mm-hmm. which yes. was um, that particular case came before uh, the Supreme Court last October. And it concerned the, an Irish citizen who was serving a sentence in the U.S. after pleading guilty to having conspired to materially assist the terrorist group. Mm-hmm. And in that case, the the Supreme Court uh, in that case concluded that because of the drastic consequences of a revocation um, of naturalisation, that a very high standard of justice must apply. Mm-hmm. And it held that the process provided for in, in, in Section 19 um, of the Act didn't actually provide the procedural safeguards required to meet the high standards of natural justice applicable. So, in particular, an applicant must be entitled to a process which provides minimum procedural safeguards, including an independent and impartial decision-maker. I'm quoting there from the from the, from the judgment. And the Supreme Court held that, that Section 19, which sets out the uh, the power of the minister to revoke a certificate of naturalisation, is in fact unconstitutional. Yes. So it will be interesting to see what really? the upshot of that case will be and what the um, how, how that will be remedied. Absolutely. So really, we've touched on various the important aspects there, um, including revocation, which is really an interesting area. So that's one to watch. And, you know, obviously you're noticing this, the surge in, in applications from around the world for many, many reasons that we spoke about earlier. Um, but just to kind of, I suppose, relate back to this podcast and the title of this podcast, which is, of course, Activist Lawyers. And, you know, we've been very lucky to have fantastic guests join us on this the new po- this new podcast. It's only started um, towards the end of last year. Um, so with your area as well, Carolyn, I know you've worked in, you know, we're talking about citizenship today, but you've really covered a broad range of, of immigration matters throughout your career, including asylum and, you know, people who are in very, very vulnerable positions. But looking at citizenship as well, and I suppose in the context, and we'll, we'll just touch on this, um, we've spoken about it a little bit uh, previously, just around I suppose the con- concept of Irish citizenship and how one attains Irish citizenship after the constitutional, the referendum in 2004 and how that changed um, the whole context in terms of children who are born in Ireland and how, um, you know, if they're born to non-Irish parents, they'll no longer have, they would no longer have the automatic right to Irish citizenship unless at least one of those parents had lived here for three out of the previous four years. And people still ask us those questions, you know, if they're unsure about about the law and they'll say, look, I have a child born in Ireland when you're looking at their status to see what, what it is. Um, so... There's been a lot of discussion recently, I suppose over the last few years, about the 2004 referendum and a poll was put out, I think the Irish Times did it not so long ago, where people, the figures changed. And I think it was a close enough call, but the figures had changed in terms of people looking at maybe revising this area, whether through you know, another referendum or through whatever means possible to give children um, a right to citizenship who were born here. How have you been? Have you been following any of that, or what's your thoughts on on that? Um, this was the legislative yeah, process well, involved. At the moment, the um, there is a bill before the Shannon, and it, I think it's at the third stage at the moment. 
the Irish nationality and citizenship naturalisation of minors born in Ireland bill 2018. Mm-hmm. And that was put forward um, by the uh, Labour Party and uh, sort of heavily backed by Ivana Batrick, mm-hmm. Aidan O'Reardon and Kevin Humphreys. And effectively, the bill, um, if, if, if the bill is passed, it will it would amend the law in Ireland in relation to applicants for a certificate of naturalisation by minors born in um, Ireland. Um, my understanding is that if if they've been here for three years, um, that if the bill is passed, well, uh, just on a very general level, I think mm-hmm. that the 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 minor children would be entitled to citizenship, having resided here for three years, mm-hmm. and. Um, but, but that bill is very much at an early stage. I mean, it, it is at the third stage, but it, whether that bill will become law is um, is another matter. It to be seen, yeah. Yeah, it would certainly be a very welcome development. Absolutely, um, you it's know, just how we get there. <laughs> it's just how we get yeah. there. And it's it really, you know, people are in very difficult circumstances. Like, I mean, you, you could have children that, um, for example, of school-going age, about to do the leaving certificate or something like that. And even though they're here in the Irish system and they get the points and the leaving cert and all that kind of stuff, if they're non-EEA nationals, the college fees are so penal that they're just, you know, they can't continue with their education. So um, I think, you know, if we are, you know, if there are children born here and make their lives here and they're here for a number of years and they go through the system the same as uh, an Irish citizen child, well, then um, a, a, this act would be very, yeah. would be a very welcome development. Yeah, and I mean, there was lots of high-profile cases in the media where you would see communities in Ireland rallying around families, supporting particular children's cases as examples. And I remember the former Minister for Health, Simon Harris, you know, backing... Um, cases within his own constituency at the time so you know Ireland's a small enough place and and uh, I suppose communities are you know to to a large extent integrated so I can see where the support would come from when people especially young children are really really part of their community they're born here I suppose that's in contrast to people who apply for citizenship through for example the foreign birth register from abroad without maybe ever having been in Ireland so there's lots to discuss there but I I think I agree with you Carol you know it would be a very welcome welcome development obviously just another I suppose related point um, that we've been looking at in terms of the COVID and the pandemic and you know (laughs) great changes around immigration in the UK um, as a result of Brexit and I suppose uh, the catalyst has been COVID and putting things together but um, frontline workers in many EU countries the last I looked at was was France offering to expedite applications for citizenship. Uh, where do we stand in terms of that in, in, in Ireland and Irish citizenship, do you think, or has there been any movement around that uh, concept? Um, well, on, I guess there's two, there's two points there. The, the first one is that only last week the minister brought about, because of COVID, obviously, people couldn't travel to the ceremonies to give their declaration of loyalty to the state and all of that, mm-hmm. which meant that we were left in this sort of really... Um, unfair situation whereby many people had already been um, granted their certificates of naturalisation but or had been approved for them but couldn't turn up to the ceremonies to actually um, make their sworn declaration to the state and thereby obtain their certificates. So we since last March um, there were I think 4,000 people affected by that and the Minister just last week she um, she is now sending those people um, a declaration, an affidavit effectively, a declaration of loyalty to the state that they can sign that declaration and therefore get their certificates of naturalisation unaffected by COVID. Great. Um, so that's, that's one issue. But just in relation to the, uh, and, and sorry, just going back to that, there will be a lot of healthcare workers probably in that 4,000, yes, you know. Of course. But, but there's, um, there are thousands and thousands of citizenship applications that have been delayed considerably, not just because of COVID, yeah. but because of delays in the system. Mm-hmm. And um, there are a lot of healthcare workers, doctors, uh, nurses, whatever, uh, that are waiting on their applications to be dealt with for a number of years. Now, my understanding of that is that that has an effect on their training 
and their job opportunities, mm-hmm. it puts them in a situation whereby they have to continually renew residence permissions where they already fit the criteria for, for citizenship and have made their applications. Mm-hmm. So only this morning, actually, I came off the phone from a doctor who has been waiting now for four years almost for his mm-hmm. citizenship application to be dealt with. And that's not all. Of, that's not that, that uncommon. Mm-hmm. I know four years probably on the higher side, but at the same time, um, there are thousands, not just healthcare workers, but people who are waiting for their citizenship applications to be dealt with for well in excess of two years. Yeah. And I think because of COVID now and all of that, that that time period will go up and up and up. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's completely, in my view unjustified to keep somebody waiting for that long in circumstances where they already fulfill the criteria because we don't have a system to not even a system to accelerate people but just an efficient system that will you know process and get these applications in a timely manner yeah Yeah. absolutely and you meet with clients it's so frustrating i mean for them it impacts them as you said you've given examples there at how how it might impact somebody we have i think the longest we have is just over three years but that person, you know, it, they're very anxious about it. And, you know, they'd say, could you check, have they got the application, which they have because it's been acknowledged. But, you know, has it fallen off the radar? Is it still being looked at? You know, so you can imagine yourself the, the stress and anxiety that goes along with that. And it's not justified. So I think um, the microscope is on citizenship and um, in general. And it's great that we got to discuss the development in, in case law around it, which is highly important, but also just... Um, some of these issues have been ongoing pre-COVID, as you rightly point out. And I think there really needs to be a whole review, particularly in terms of the delay. And only this week there was um, articles published again about the uh, the extortionate delays in Irish citizenship. So just before we finish up um, on the citizenship point and finish off today's episode, it strikes me that another issue, I suppose it's a worldwide issue that has arisen, and I've recently been seeing it from... Um, emanating from American US press around Biden and the call on um, the, the new government uh, to do something around undocumented migrants there too. Ireland is making some moves around that in terms of the 17,000, it, it reports 17,000 undocumented, undocumented migrants um, who are basically living in limbo. And there seems to be some movement to consider a new scheme. What do you know around that, Carol? And, you know, is there any useful information for for listeners around that? Yeah, well, I certainly hope that that is the case. Um, The minister has uh, indicated that uh, she will accept um, or put in place a scheme for undocumented migrants living in Ireland, um, which if, if that is put in place, that would be the biggest thing to ever happen in the history of Irish immigration law. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the, the, I, I read some of the articles as well, and I think it's estimated that there are 17,000 undocumented migrants in Ireland. I believe that the figure is far higher than that. I don't have any basis for that belief, but I guess I'm just thinking about the number of people that we see here, even on a daily basis, the number of inquiries that we get from undocumented migrants. And since, since the minister has published this, um, well, given out some indication that there will be a scheme in place, and, and I think the indications are that it might be put in place early in the new year, the inquiries have just spiralled through the roof here. You know, yeah. people, you know, they have been here for sometimes like 15, 20 years, and they're living under the radar. And, um, you know, I, I if... I think if if those people could be helped and if their immigration status could be regularised, many of those people would be of enormous benefit to the state. Absolutely. And a lot of them are children included in the figures, wouldn't it be? Yeah. So undocumented children, yeah. I have to say, uh, Sarah, in all the years that I've been doing this, I've never come across an undocumented migrant that wasn't willing to work, contribute to the state, And, you know, every single one of them, um, almost without exception, they work whether um, and they pay taxes to the state and they um, they do contribute to the state. And then many of them obviously are probably not working by paying taxes to the state, by doing it illegally. And uh, but not that those 
people working are entitled to work as such. But you know what I mean? I there are people yeah. paying taxes to state and they're in a lot of um, jobs. But you, like, I think if those people um, were allowed to, to, to stay, um, I, I can't see how the state would... Um, be negatively impacted. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and um, it's just heartbreaking, really, to see people coming in here um, that have literally been here for years, living under the radar. They're afraid they can't go home to a family funeral or a bereavement. Their parents might yeah. die. Their siblings might die. They, they're absolutely, effectively trapped here. It really and, is. Uh, yeah, it's devastating. It's very heartbreaking. It really is. And as you said, I mean, my previous experience in Dublin, when I worked there, you did encounter so many people. And it was a fear, even a fear of speaking to an immigration lawyer about their case and giving away too many details. There was a real trust um, issue there about speaking to anybody. But COVID really highlighted that, didn't it? In terms of even people afraid to report for testing. And the government had put some kind of campaign in place around, look, you know, go and get tested you know if you have symptoms please attend you know your local GP or whatever it might be Um, so really that recognised you know for I mean we're all aware of it but put it out there to the public that people are undocumented they're living among us in our communities working away and you know Covid affected everybody no matter who you are so um, the recognition was there and I guess maybe perhaps that has spurred this more concrete development as you said one of the biggest developments in Irish immigration in a long time but perhaps that really highlighted it and obviously the need for more workers in you know healthcare, care workers all of that that these uh, people could contribute to and perhaps already do so yeah. really really important and it's really exciting to see how that develops so yeah yeah i mean interesting times carl in in immigration in general for for all of us and of course we just previously mentioned our 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 activist lawyer podcast here and what really i suppose it came from um the government the uk's government's um attack on immigration lawyers were the first to be to be sought after around you know calling them lefty lawyers and do-gooders etc just for our listeners or anybody interested in getting into this area you know maybe in particular your area of work what would you say to them and how important is it to continue with activism within your area well I think that uh, being an immigration lawyer is um firstly the work is extremely rewarding it's interesting the uh, there's so much law in the area and um you know it's it's very exciting, you know, mm-hmm. there's the high court challenges and constitutional um, elements to it and certain cases change the law and all of that. So I think as a career for a, a lawyer, it's probably um, a, a very exciting one because you're getting so much, um, I, I suppose, it's a very humanitarian role. But at the same time, it's, uh, you know, you get involved in very significant cases even mm-hmm. before the European court. So that's uh that's one area I think that a lot of other areas of law wouldn't have. Exactly. And um, just in general, um, I, I, I guess it's a problem in the UK as well as it is in Ireland. But um, in, in the UK, I know that migration consultants are regulated mm-hmm. and it's a regulated um, uh, function. But in Ireland, unfortunately, there is no regulation for migration consultants. So effectively, anybody could call themselves a migration consultant yeah. and start to provide um, that type of uh, service without any experience whatsoever. And unfortunately, a lot of vulnerable people fall prey to those types mm-hmm. of individuals. And um, so I guess, thankfully, the Department of Justice in Ireland only deal with immigration solicitors yeah. uh, in relation to, in other words, what I mean by that is all of the correspondence in relation to cases and that come to the solicitors they, they, and they don't deal with um, migration consultants. Yeah. But we definitely need to regulate that area because there's a number of immigration lawyers, not that many in Ireland, and they're all um, you know, trying to do a good job and trying to um, run their practices very well in the area of immigration. But unfortunately, we are hindered by yes. migration or so-called migration consultants. I'm not saying I'm not tarring them all with the one brush, no. but they, there are certainly a number of them out there, and um, who don't um, who don't put the the 
clients uh, first and who, as far as I can see, take take significant advantage of them. Yeah, and many of these clients, as you say, are in completely vulnerable positions and, you know, are yeah. easily targeted. And I guess it's good that even the Law Society in Ireland, um, as recently as today, I think, have highlighted some some practices as well. So, uh, yeah, regu- t- to have that... Um, more of a regulatory system in place would be crucial, I guess, given the extent of that that type of practice. But again, um, I suppose access to justice is the main thing here. And to really play that down, as the government in the UK has done, is just really flies in the face of, of the rule of law. And um, so the work that you're doing, and I suppose your team behind you, Carol, is just so important and so valuable. So I think on, on that note, I think we'll finish up today. And I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us here and Carol will hopefully be in touch again around further developments because it's such an interesting area of citizenship and some of the other areas you work in in immigration so thank you for joining us today yeah thanks very much for having me Sarah no problem at all so for listeners you can um, tune in to our podcast and our blog as well on www.activistlawyer.com And we look forward to next week's episode. Thank you for joining us. Bye. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.